Welcome to Looking Deeper, the podcast for the preaching ministry of Berean Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My name is Marcus Little, and I'm the senior pastor of that congregation. We are of the conviction that the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are enough to bring about the purposes of God for our lives and for the world. Because of that, we view preaching not as a one-way activity, but as a conversation. Please feel free to join us in that conversation by emailing me at marcus at bereangr.org or through our Facebook page, or better yet, by visiting us in person sometime for our Sunday services. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the corner of Coit and Sweet in Northeast Grand Rapids. For now, I trust that God's Spirit will speak to God's people through this part of God's Word. It was less than three months ago that... The United States ended its longest war, the war in Afghanistan, a war that began before the last soldiers that were engaged in fighting it were born. It ended in a fashion that disappointed just about every objective that it had been prosecuted in order to achieve. And the phrase that came to my mind was from the first time that the United States engaged itself in Afghanistan during the 1980s when I was a kid. We sought to prevent the takeover of that country by the Soviet Union. And in doing so, we achieved the objective. The Soviet Union was forced to withdraw in the end. But the statement that came out was that we won the war, we failed to win the peace. Our second involvement in Afghanistan ended similarly. After a fashion, we won the war at certain points, but failed to win the peace. And as I thought about that, I thought about the history of war throughout human history. Every war has been won by somebody, and every war that somebody has failed to win the peace. Every war has sought to be the last war. Every war has sought to be the war that will prevent any further war from taking place. And every war has failed, including this country's most recent war. The Bible is no stranger to the reality of war among humanity. It's on virtually every page of the text from the very earliest chapters of Scripture, we find Abraham waging war to rescue his nephew. War is an ever-present reality for us as human beings. And as Garth talked about the wheel of salvation, one of the spokes, I don't know if it was on his professor's wheel, but it is one of the spokes, is the metaphor of war, that God is waging a war that will win the peace that will secure humanity from war, because the war that God is waging is a war against war. The enemy in this war is not a group of human beings. It is the things that we have enslaved ourselves to that produce things like war. And so God's war is very different. The passages that we're going to be looking at in First Chronicles this morning, three chapters, chapters 18, 19, and 20, I was telling someone before the service, part of the reason that I approach preaching the way that I do, this 12-year plan of we're going to go through all of the books at some point, is partly to prevent my own agenda from determining what we talk about. 
which means that there are parts of the Scriptures that if left to my own devices, I would just never touch. And so I took us into First Chronicles, and I wasn't particularly excited about First Chronicles in the abstract. I didn't know much about it, hadn't spent much time in it, thought it was redundant. And I have been so surprised, and yet I shouldn't be shocked, that what Paul said about Scripture is true, that all of it's useful. But as I started into this series and started to see some of the exciting things, in the back of my mind I knew today was coming, chapters 18, 19, and 20. And as I had skimmed over them, glanced through them, read the book, which I tend to do before a series, read the whole thing in one sitting just to kind of capture all of it, I said to myself, I have no idea what I'm going to do with chapters 18, 19, and 20. Couldn't we just skip over this part? But you know my rule, right? We don't do that here. We don't skip over this part. We don't look away. We look closer. And as I looked closer, there is much about the wars of David that are the subject of these three chapters that speak directly to us. And as I'm finding more and more, this book and these passages speak directly to our moment right now. I believe they have something to say to us on November 7th, 2021, that we might not have been able to hear one or two or three years ago. Surely they would have said something to us, but I believe that what God has to say to us this morning is particularly relevant from these passages, and so I'm excited to share it with you. So there's three things that we're going to talk about, but before we get into this, the thing that I want us to leave here today understanding is that Jesus is portrayed as a warrior king. We're going to talk about the ways in which Jesus, David's descendant, fulfills all of these realities. And that Jesus' war brings about a peace that ensures that in Jesus' kingdom, no one walks alone, no one is left out, no one is forgotten, and no one is left behind. Jesus' warfare achieves what human warfare never can. Human warfare always ends with a body count. Jesus' warfare ends with wholeness and healing because he's waging war against war. Jesus' kingdom achieves a peace that ensures that no one is alone, no one gets left behind, no one gets forgotten, no one is alone. So we're going to start with 1 Chronicles 18, which is just a survey of the king's warfare, King David's warfare. It's a telling in short order of three wars that David fought against the Philistines, the Moabites, and this guy named Hadadezer, one of those great Bible names. He's the king of Zobah Hamath, if you're interested. And there's this recurring refrain. David goes out, he fights the war, he wins the war, and the people against whom he fought become subject to him and pay him tribute. They become servants of his, subject to him, and bring him tribute. Now, on the surface of it, that's not that extraordinary. Every king does that. That's what kings are supposed to do. They're supposed to go out and make war against the enemy nations around them and subdue them and take things from them and receive their service for the betterment of their own people. But again, the chronicler does some really subtle things point us in a slightly different direction. Remember that their portrait of David is very idealized. All of David's failures are left in the background. David is nothing but successful and victorious, and the purpose of that is that David is bringing about a peace for Israel that ensures that there are no threats. 
And so the tale of these wars is told very straightforwardly, very simply. David went out, he fought, he won. The chronicler is careful to say God gave David the victory. And that is distinct. God is, God is waging war through David to bring about a peace. But if David adhered to the law of God, this is going to be a different outcome than when other kings wage war. Other kings wage war in order to exploit foreign peoples for the betterment of their people. But Israel's law was different. Israel's law said that there was only going to be one law, both for the native Israelite and for the foreign-born. There was to be no distinctions, no tears in society based on whether you were a foreigner or a native-born Israelite, because the vision of God for Israel given to Abraham was that all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Not that Abraham's family would receive blessing by subduing all the other families of the earth. And so when David goes out and expands the borders of Israel, as the chronicler describes, and brings other people into the kingdom, the intention is that they come into the kingdom as fully equal citizens of God's kingdom. Because God is not just the God of David or the God of Israel. God is the God of all the nations and all peoples and desires all peoples to live in his presence. And so what David does with the tribute that is brought is one of the things the chronicler brings our attention to, does something different with. Verse 8 reads this way, that from Tibhath and from Kun, cities of Hadadezer, David took a large amount of bronze and with it, Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels of bronze, furniture in the temple of God. Instead of David taking that tribute and using it to enrich himself, he brings it into the temple of God, indicating that he is not, according to Nathan's promise, building his own kingdom, but that it is God's kingdom that David has been promised. This is not an ordinary human kingdom that David is meant to establish and to point to. And so David goes about this pattern of bringing people into God's kingdom, intended to be brought in as equals, and building the temple that would be the dwelling place of God from which God would be able to bless all nations. Remember what it says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for my chosen people? No, for all nations. So one of the things that I am convinced of about Chronicles is that it is meant to point the original audience and us forward into the future rather than back. It is a book about history. It is a book about the past, but I believe that it is meant to point us forward. And so my practice over these last few weeks has been to jump to Jesus quickly. That's the phrase that I've used because I believe that ultimately it is about Jesus. David is a shadow. That's why we don't need to get concerned about all of David's many imperfections and faults and flaws and failures. And even just the subject of war, I need to say this, the idea of God ordaining warfare and violence makes me and many of us uncomfortable. And while it's important that we delve into that, if we jump to Jesus, we find a much better and more satisfying resolution to the question. And so Paul in Ephesians, we're going to be in Ephesians as well as First Chronicles this morning. Ephesians 4, 7, and 8, Paul gives us this image drawn directly from the Psalms. But grace was given to each one of us Subjects of Christ's kingdom, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to people. 
The image from the Psalms there is God as the divine warrior. The God ascends, having been victorious over his enemies, to assume his throne, to reign over his kingdom in peace and justice. And he leads a host of captives and distributes the tribute to those who are part of his kingdom. What Paul describes here is that what God is going about doing in his warfare, the captives here, I believe, are us. We have been set free from the kingdoms that bound us, and we are the ones God has rescued. The image of David subduing peoples and they become subject to him is not about domination. It is ultimately about deliverance. They get to be part of the kingdom of Israel. That was the intention. And that is certainly what Jesus is about, is redeeming us, transferring us. We read this language earlier from the identities and the groups that we had been part of, and now we are part of the Jesus people. We are part of Jesus' kingdom. But the tribute, Paul says that God distributed gifts to people and goes on to say he gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. In other words, he gave us as the tribute. We are the tribute. We are the bounty of Jesus' war. And what does God do with that tribute? He builds us into a temple, the dwelling place of God. And so David's warfare points us towards the warfare that Jesus is waging, a warfare that is to rescue and redeem and deliver people out of bondage and to build them into the dwelling place of God, the temple of God. We don't have to look far to realize that that ideal that Jesus prayed for, that from all of the people that he would redeem, that they would be one just as he is one with the other members of the triune God. That that unity has not been realized for most of the history of the church. We see glimpses of it here and there as the Spirit moves and as we yield to the Spirit. But we know full well the body of Christ, the kingdom of Jesus, still is fractured and oftentimes along lines of nationality, of race and ethnicity. I shared in the Monday email that over the next two weeks, there is going to be a space down at City Life Church on Division Avenue, ironically, praying for unity, praying for unity on Division Avenue specifically asking that God would bring healing where there has been fracture in the church. On the little uh, mailbox, the file cabinets out there, there are some cards with a QR code with a website that you can go to to find out the times that it will be open over the next two weeks. It's meant for people to go through individually or in small groups to seek God's heart for reconciliation and for healing in our city specifically. I've been involved in planning and putting it together. We're kicking off with a prayer walk this afternoon at 3 o'clock. We're meeting up at City Life, and I'd love to see some of you there, all of you there. This is what Jesus' warfare is aiming at. This is what it is about. It is Jesus' warfare just as it was David's warfare. But the second thing that I saw in this passage, beginning in verse 12 of 1 Chronicles 18, as more details are given about some of these wars. We now get sort of a flashback. The wars are summed up, and now we get some stories out of these wars. And they focus on the comrades in arms. One of the interesting things about the chronicler is that as much as David is portrayed as this warrior king that 
brings victory and peace, he is removed personally from most of the fighting. The chronicler actually goes to some lengths to take David out of the actual fighting and instead focus on the soldiers who were engaged, specifically two individuals, Abiashai and Joab, nephews of King David, brothers. And so in verse 12, we see that it's Abishai who achieves a victory over the Edomites. The first version of that story in Samuel has David going out and doing that, but here Abishai is credited with the victory. And then we have this list of David's officials, those who helped bring about the peace. And then we have several stories about wars against Ammonites and Syrians that involve Joab, who was the commander of the army, and Joab is given pride of place in these narratives. And this was one of those places, again, I didn't expect to find anything. And then I came to verses 12 and 13 of 1 Chronicles 19. Joab and Abishai have been tasked with going out with the army to fight against the Ammonites. And the Ammonites have reached out to the Syrians, a powerful nation at the time, for help. And so Joab finds that the battle is set in front of him and behind him. He is confronted with superior numbers of forces, and they've got him surrounded. And he pulls a Robert E. Lee. He decides to divide his forces in the presence of superior numbers. It's bold and audacious. He takes the best of Israel's troops to face the Syrians. He gives the rest of the army, likely a larger number, to his brother Abishai. And he says this, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will help you. He lays it out there for Abishai. We're splitting up. We've each got our assignment. I'm going to fight the Syrians. You're going to fight the Ammonites. But just because we split up and we take these individual tasks does not mean we fight alone. If the Syrians prove too strong for me, you will come help me and vice versa. This is a powerful image of two people, of an army, having one another's backs. This is what it means for us to be in God's kingdom, that we have one another's backs, that when we turn and face the individual assignments, the challenges that we have in life that are part of our calling from God, And wherever you are in life, whatever circumstance you find yourself in is an assignment from God. God has placed you there. And you will find that it is a struggle, it is a challenge at times. And it is uniquely yours, and yet God's intention is not for you to face it alone. Each of us needs a Joab or an Abishai. Someone to whom we can say, if my assignment gets to be too much, you've got to come help me, and I will do the same for you. So, a couple of years ago, you all gifted me the opportunity of taking a sabbatical. And during that time, I took an inventory of a lot of aspects of my life. And one of the things that I realized is that I did not have any relationships in my life that were solely relationships of friendship. Every relationship in my life, while they may have been friendships, they were also something else as well. So, I have close relationships and friendships with people in my family, but they're also my family. I have close relationships and friendships with people here, but you're also members of my church, and I am your pastor. There's a dual relationship. I found that I had no one in my life that was just 
a friend. So I did something about it. I came back from sabbatical and I got together with someone that I had gotten to know in a professional capacity here in Grand Rapids. We got together for lunch and he'd been interested to hear about my sabbatical and what that experience was like. And I had resolved because sometimes it's hard to ask, to recognize I need someone to be my friend. I need a relationship that can be like this. But I decided to throw caution to the wind and go back to what we used to do when we were on the schoolyard as kids. You walk up to somebody and say, will you be my friend? So I took Daryl out to lunch and I said, will you be my friend? I said it exactly like that. And to my great delight, he said yes. And he also had been wondering if we could form a friendship because he was finding himself in the same position. And in the two years since, we have had each other's backs. There have been times when the Syrians have been too strong for me and he has come to help. And there's times when the Ammonites have been too strong for him, and he has come to help. I want to encourage you this morning, if that resonates with you, if you find yourself facing Syrians or Ammonites, and you don't know if someone's got your back, don't be afraid to ask. But I also want to encourage you to be a Joab, to take the initiative in offering help. Look around. Who is it that you feel might find themselves alone against the Syrians or the Ammonites in their lives? that needs to know that somebody's got their back. This is who we need to be to one another. But Joab goes on. What's interesting to me is that the story doesn't take the narrative turn I would expect with this sort of statement. I would expect, and sure enough, one of those forces was too strong for one of them, and they helped each other out. We don't get any of that. We just get that they won, <laughs> that it worked, which makes me all the more focused on that statement, why include it if it didn't affect the outcome of the battle. I think it's because it's this picture of what these two were like. But then Joab says this, be strong and let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God and may Yahweh do what seems good to him. This is the Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego perspective, right? The three of us were hanging together and we're clinging to God and we're gonna use our strength for our people and our God. I love that phrase. Let us use our strength not to dominate and subdue and crush. Let us use our strength for our people. As believers, let us use our strength for the people of God. And let Yahweh do what seems good to him. Joab recognizes they may lose this battle, but they're going to lose if they lose, and they don't lose, together. That is the perspective that we have as the people of God. We go to the mat for one another. There's no quit. There's no, if it looks like we're losing, I'm going to bail. You're on your own. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4.16, that the whole body joined and held together by what every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We need one another. Each of us needs every other one of us. There are no disposable parts of the body of Christ. That's why I encourage us, do not think that you do not have something to offer to someone in your life. Strength that can be used for God's people. Every part is vital. And when the body as God has equipped it, has every part working properly, we grow and build ourselves up in love. This is the image. 
It's interesting that Paul uses the metaphor of the body here because of where he goes at the end of the book that we're going to get to. So Jesus' warfare is a warfare that is bringing people together, not tearing them apart or tearing them down. And the result is this kind of fierce loyalty, this comradeship, where we have each other's backs. The passages end, however, with the account of three individual fights between champions of Israel and what I call lying giants. These are some of those stories that I, we do tell stories about giants. I said a few months ago when we were talking about Isaiah that we don't talk enough with our kids about dragons in the Bible, and there are dragons, and that's something that we ought to talk about more. Giants do get quite a bit of attention in Sunday school, thanks to David, because one of the longest chapters in David's life deals with the fight that David had against Goliath. Um, Goliath comes up in these verses, by the way, and if you haven't had a chance, I did a bonus episode of the church podcast this last week about that Goliath and these giants and some of the details. But what stood out to me about these giants, starting with Goliath that fought David, is the characteristic that the challenge of the giants, the reason they're dangerous, is not their size, it's not their weapons, it's not their armor. The reason they're dangerous is that they lie. They stand up, they stand tall, and they shout loudly lies about God and God's people. It's the lies that are deadly. And so we read of this giant who is not named. He's huge, and he's got six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, struck him down. When he taunted Israel, when he stood up and shouted the kinds of things that Goliath shouted at the armies of Israel that caused them all to fear until David stepped forward and said, why are you afraid? David's nephew, Shimea, struck him down. He stood his ground, believing that what the giant was saying about Israel's God was false. That sometimes takes more courage than we care to admit. The lies stand tall on the field of our lives. And they sound really intimidating. And that is why they are the principal weapon of our enemy. So I want to take us to Ephesians 6. I encourage you to turn there. It's a familiar passage but in some cases, some ways, I think we get the emphasis wrong. We've talked about warfare a lot today, and I want to, again, caution us not to make the wrong application. It is easy for us to imagine that other human beings are the targets in spiritual warfare. And as soon as we think that, we need to remember the first thing that Paul tells us about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, which is that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. There is no human being that poses a threat to the body of Christ or to individual believers. Not really. Paul's very clear on that. There's nothing they can do to us. In fact, God's warfare is about saving and redeeming them, not defeating them. Our struggle is against the powers and principalities, the spiritual forces that God has been fighting from the beginning, those that have enslaved us to death and war and all the rest. And so Paul tells us to be strong 
Remember Joab's words, let us be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Our strength is not our own. And then Paul says this extraordinary thing, put on the whole armor of God. God is portrayed in the Old Testament as a divine warrior with pieces of armor that he puts on when going out to wage war against his enemies. And Paul here says, and he's going to put it on you. Now, oftentimes we think that this is individual, that I on my own am putting on a breastplate of righteousness and a belt of truth and the shoes and all the rest of it. But there's only one God, so there's only one set of armor. And remember that Paul said that Jesus is putting us into one body. And so the armor is something we put on together. It is worn corporately so that we together can stand against what Paul calls the schemes of the devil. Later on, he talks about fiery darts that come our way. These are the lies of the enemy. But as I thought about the armor itself, there's one piece that is specifically invoked against those darts. It is the shield of faith. And in Paul's day, a shield was actually not terribly useful for the soldier who carried it. The way the Romans designed their armor was only useful if you were marching in a tightly packed formation, and your shield was actually more useful protecting the people next to you. When the Roman legions would approach an enemy position, they would form something that in Latin gets translated as a tortoise shell. The soldiers in front would lock their shields together to form a wall, and the soldiers in the second and third ranks would put their shields above to protect the soldiers in front of them from the fiery darts that would be launched from the enemy position towards them. When the enemy fires their fiery darts at you, it is not your personal faith, oftentimes, that is the best resource. It is often necessary for you to stand behind someone else's shield. It is necessary for us to extend our shields of faith to one another. I had the opportunity earlier this week to talk with Heather. Garth mentioned we're going to be hearing from them about their testimony of adoption, and she shared with me how powerful it is when as they accept the assignment from God that they have received for the children in their home, that a lot of lies can come at them. A lot of false notions about the worthiness of that or the effectiveness of that or their capacity to do it. I think a lot of that is common to all of us. How often do any of us wonder, is what I'm pursuing as God's call in my life really worth it? Is it accomplishing anything? Does it matter Is it too much for me? And if you're anything like me, and as Heather shared with me, anything like Heather, those voices get really loud inside our own heads. And sometimes you just need someone, and we underestimate how valuable this is to stand next to you or behind you and just put a shield of faith over you and say out loud the truth. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. God loves you more than you can possibly fathom or imagine. And God has called you to do what you are doing in pursuit of God's purposes of extending his love to everyone around you. And that shield of faith that a brother or sister raises up over us quenches those fiery darts. 
but we often don't think very much of it. What can I do? I, I just say some words and that's supposed to help? Yes. Now, I may have a bias here because my whole job is to stand up here and say words and imagine that it helps. And there are plenty of times where I wonder, is this just a colossal waste of time and resources? This passage this week, I told you I wasn't expecting much. It reminded me that it's of immense value to say to someone, if your Syrians get too strong for you, I'm here. And we'll use our strength for the people of God and the cities of God. And Yahweh will do as he sees fit. And that's why Paul concludes this passage about armor and warfare with five commandments to pray. Which is the other thing that we can often minimize. All I can do is pray. I feel so helpless. All you can do is pray. All you can do is summon the resources of the eternal one and true God into someone's situation. That's all you can do? Terrific. Do that. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody. But you pray for someone, you send up that flare for help, and you expect God to respond. And oftentimes, we, we fail to take the next step, which is to tell the person that we prayed for them and that God is with them. And for, like you gotta, you got to tell them. you got to report out, I prayed for you. And I want you to know that God loves you and God's got you and I've got your back. We forget to say things out loud sometimes, and we just need to do that more. The armor is secondary. We can get all caught up in the details of the armor. Paul tells us to do two things. Stand together and pray for each other all the time, in all circumstances. The lies are loud. The giants, taunts can drown out the voice of faith. So as we continue in worship, Dave and the music team are going to come back up Uh, And Dave's going to read for us from Psalm 144, which talks about how God fights lies. I just want to invite you in this space to consider the lies that you are being tempted to believe. What are the giants shouting at you? And how can we be shields of faith for one another? How can we have one another's backs so that God's kingdom and peace and wholeness come to bear in our lives? Thanks for listening to this week's message. I pray you were blessed by what you heard. We hope you'll join us again next week, whether on this podcast, via our live stream, or in person. Until then, watch for our bonus episodes with reflections on this message and a preview of next week's message that drop throughout the week. Until then, may the God who loves us beyond our ability to think or imagine bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, look upon you with favor, and give you peace.